welcome to a special edition of uh, Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host uh, for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer your questions. It's my uh, pleasure to introduce my co-host, uh, Ray Wong. He's the founder and CEO of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, and in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot, and welcome to my co-host, Bala Afshar. He's the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce, but more importantly, he's on TV, business press, and author himself, and one of the top people to follow for CIOs, CMOs, and CEOs on Twitter. You can follow him at V-A-L-A-A-F-S-H-A-R. Uh, and let's introduce our VIP host, Dr. David Bray. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible honor to have a co-host. So Ray and I have had the privilege of interviewing uh, about 600 guests on our show in the past four years, but this is a first for us. <laughs> We've never had a former prime minister and mayor of a major global city on our show. Before we introduce our guests, I would like to introduce our co-host for today. Uh, we're also joined by Dr. David Bray, who will serve as a guest host for this special edition of Disrupt TV. Most of our Disrupt TV audiences are very familiar with Dr. David Bray because in my absence, I know he has co-hosted co the show and he's one of our regular thought leaders, one of our favorites to have on our show. Dr. David Bray is inaugural director, Geotech Center and Executive Director Commission on the Geopolitical Impact of New Technologies and Data at the Atlantic Council. Welcome, Dr. David Bray, to Disrupt TV. Well, thanks for having me, uh, Vala and Ray, and I'm glad that I can actually be on here at the same time you're on this, uh, Vala, because usually we miss each other. So it's great to be here with you, with Ray, and I'm really excited about our special guest that we have here today, too. It's truly an honor for us, and I apologize. Uh, we have such accomplished guests that I'm going to do my best to give the short, shortened bio uh, of, our, of our two guests. Uh, uh, I will introduce with, uh, I will start with introducing our uh, Honorable Malcolm Turnbull, who is the 29th Prime Minister of Australia. Prior to entering politics, Mr. Turnbull enjoyed successful careers as a lawyer, investor, investment banker, and a journalist. Mr. Turnbull established an investment banking firm in 1987, specializing in media and technology sector. We'll talk about impact of a pandemic on these two se uh, sectors on the show. Mr. Turnbull co-founded the first big Australian internet company, which was listed in the NASDAQ in 1996 and later sold to WorldCom. Mr. Turnbull entered the Australian Parliament in 2004 and during that time served as Minister for the Environment and Water Resources, Minister for Communications, and then the Prime Minister from 2015 to 2018. During his time as Prime Minister, Mr. Turnbull delivered economic growth agenda that led to record job creation on back of cutting personal and company taxes. Mr. Turnbull's government legalized same-sex marriage and informed the school funding model to ensure consistent needs-based approach across all school sectors. Mr. Turnbull's government embarked on the largest peacetime expansion of modernization of Australia's defense forces, defense industry, including commissioning 54 new uh, naval vessels. Mr. Turnbull has a deep interest in energy issues and renewable energy, which we can talk about on, on the show. Mr. Turnbull also successfully negotiated a deal with President Trump to maintain refugee settlement deal, which he had agreed with President Obama. Mr. Turnbull also radically reformed the way the Australian federal government deals with state and cities, established a series of city deals, and examples of construction of the new airport for Sydney. At the time of growing nationalist sentiment across the world, Mr. Turnbull opposed racism and division at every turn, ensuring that the Australian, that, ensuring that Australia, Australia remains the most successful multicultural society in the world. Mr. Turnbull's new best-selling book is titled A Bigger Picture, which is uh, the remarkable story of his life. You can follow all this thought leadership on Twitter at Turnbull Malcolm. Uh, welcome, sir, to the Shrub TV. Thank you, thank you very much. I'm. Um... I'm uh, sort of, uh, uh, I'm, I'm embarrassed by such a generous introduction. So I did my best to reduce it because we could have yeah, spent yeah. on your accomplishments. So it's yeah, no, an no, honor no. to have you here. Thank uh, you. Again, well. our, and our second uh, uh, guest that we're so honored to have 
is Lucy Turnbull Ao, former Lord Mayor of Sydney. Lucy Turnbull is an urbanist, businesswoman, and philanthropist with a long-standing interest in cities, technological, and social innovation. From 2015 to 2020, Ms. Turnbull was the inaugural Chief Commissioner of the Greater Sydney Commission, tasked by the NSW state government to assist in delivering strong and effective planning for the whole of metropolitan Sydney. Mr. Turnbull was the first female Lord Mayor of the City of Sydney from 2003 to 2004. In 2011, Ms. Turnbull became uh, an officer of the Order of Australia for distinguished service for the community, local government, and business. Mr. Turnbull has served as a board member of multiple non-for-profit cultural and non-for-profit institutions. In 2012, Mr. Turnbull was awarded an honorary doctor of business for universe, uh, from University of New South Wales, NSW, and in 2016 was appointed adjunct professor at the Faculty of Built Environment at the University. In 2017, Mrs. Turnbull was awarded an honorary doctorate for letters from Western Sydney University, which she received for her sus substantial and sustained service and contribution to the university and the greater Western Sydney region. Mrs. Turnbull is a trustee of the Art Gallery of NSW and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's GeoCenter, focused on how new technologies and data impact geopolitics and how we can ensure tech benefits and uplifts people, prosperity, and peace globally. Please watch, and I emphasize please, capital letters, watch Mrs. Turnbull's brilliant TED Talk on designing cities for women. And if you do that, all of society benefits. It's a, it's a master class on designing cities, only 15 minutes uh, worth your time. And also please follow Mrs. Turnbull on Twitter at Lucy Turnbull underscore AO. Welcome uh, to, our, to, our, to the Shroff TV. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> we are excited to have you here. And uh, the first the first topic we want to get to is really talking about Australia and Sydney's role as a bridge between the United States and China for tech and data. I'm going to put that first question to Dr. David Bray to ask uh, mate Malcolm as well as uh, Lucy. Uh, thank you, Rain. Thank you, Vala. And again, it's, it's an honor to have you, both Malcolm and Lucy. And I remember it was about five years ago, uh, five years ago in the spring, that I met you as an Eisenhower Fellow. And so it's great to be here with you again. And really, we would like to hear your thoughts, um, sort of the, the role of Australia and the role of Australia, both as a bridge, not just between the United States and China, but a role in terms of helping to link the views of, of Europe, the Atlantic with the Pacific, uh, maybe I'll go first to Malcolm and then to Lucy, sort of where do you see that going and where do you see signs of success in terms of serving as that bridge uh, between different viewpoints? Well, thanks, David. I mean, Australia is, is the most successful multicultural society in the world. Uh, just under a third of Australians were, were born outside of Australia and come from every, every corner of the world, every religion, every race, every part of the world. Uh, over half of Australians have at least one parent born overseas. Uh, in Sydney, which Lucy's uh, got the, you know, the most intimate understanding of in every respect, and she'll have more to say about it, you know, Chinese is the second most spoken language uh, at home. Uh, and really that multicultural diversity is our greatest asset. And it provides us with extraordinary connections, uh, both around the world but particularly through this region and you know there's a lot more to this region than china china's a very big part of it obviously but uh you know one of the points that one of the elements of my diplomacy and my foreign policy approach while in while pm uh, was to emphasize that we've got to look at uh, regional politics as more of a mesh rather than just a series of uh spokes going into the imperial hubs in Beijing and Washington. Uh, and so, you know, much stronger engagement with Indonesia and all the other countries of ASEAN uh, were a key part of the agenda. But look, this, this multiculturalism in Australia, and I mean, just I'll just conclude on this point, just consider this. Around the world, there are so many places where people of different religions and ethnicities had been able to live together relatively harmoniously for hundreds if not thousands of years but today are not able to do so despite all of our technology and sophistication so in australia this diverse community living together in 
har relative harmony. There's, it's not always you know, harmonious, but, but certainly compared to just about anywhere else, that is an extraordinary achievement, but it's one we can't be complacent about. Excellent, and thank you, Malcolm and Lucy. Um, so, so Malcolm sort of teed it up with you with the expertise you have in Sydney. Sort yeah. of, where do you see Sydney as well? Go ahead. Well, it is it is one of the most multicultural nations in the world, and the the Chinese-born or Chinese-descended uh, population is a very very big and critical, you know, social, cultural, and economic component of 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 Sydney and Australia. And um, and I think that um, you know so for example we were one of the first cities i think in the the non-english speaking world with the possible exception of san francisco to really have a really beautiful chinese new year so for us the, the cultural weave of the city the chinese and asian story is absolutely fundamental to who we are and has been really i think you could say since the 1960s or the 1970s we have you know in the 19th century and early 20th century have to be honest and um, and um, you know and recognise that that we did have an, a less inclusive framework, if you like, for Asian people and and non non European people. But since the 1970s, that has been completely transformed, and we are a very open and you know open and receptive community to new cultures and new ways of doing things. And um, you know the diversity of languages spoken is a very good example of that. There are about 200 languages spoken in Sydney as there are in any large global city. Um, so, you know, we, we, because, of the, because of our inclusiveness and because of the diversity of, amongst us, we don't tend to have, um, you know, and I suppose because we're a middle power too, we don't seem, we don't, I don't think we have an us and them uh, global mindset uh, really, um, or we haven't had, and I'd like to think we don't develop one because we are very, very um, geolocated in the Asia Pacific region. So it's those relationships with our neighbours and our and nations and people in our time zone, which is so important to us. Um, and so we are, if you like, um, you know, we are a kind of like a, a diverse, predominantly European, British political system and legal system nation you know originally much much adapted for our own use in the asia pacific region so that makes us pretty special along with new zealand and i think that gives us dual insights into um, the, the 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 um the approaches that a lot of different countries have which includes you know the us very much um uh european countries the uk so we're kind of we're kind of culturally and um, and uh, Asian countries too, particularly China and India. I've observed even in the last 10 years, there has been an extraordinary growth in uh, the presence of South Asians in Sydney, especially in the area around where the Greater Sydney Commission is located in and around Parramatta. And, the, and so many of those South Asians actually have PhDs and they work in very, very, very high knowledge intensive industries and and they they have and will continue to make an increasing contribution, if you like, to our human capital and intellectual capital. And so you see these sort of these new um, kind of groups coming in, establishing themselves, feeling at home, feeling included, and then becoming very much a part of the mesh fabric of the nation. So that's one of the things that inspired me about cities is the way that places like Sydney and I think a lot of US cities too actually you know um, embrace if you like embrace in all ways the the uh, the ways and the cultural values from right around the world and these people become part of our part of our fabric at the same time that's terrific uh, you mentioned uh, you mentioned China you mentioned India and United States according to world economic forecasts of GDP in that order, uh, China, India, and US will be the top three GDP by the end of the decade. Um, uh, and, you, and you also reference universities and PhDs. What can Australia, or what advice do you have for other countries in terms of strengthening their relationship and partnerships with these uh, three countries? Um, is it uh, cross-pollination of ta talent through university programs? Is it venture capital, investing in entrepreneurship and startups? Uh, 
we talk about rise of China and India, but you know, historically, those two countries have have had large majority of uh, they made up large uh, portion of the economy. So, um, and, 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 and absolutely in the last 10 years, incredible growth, but uh, they were two, uh, two incredible economies, economies since, uh, since uh, a very long time. So advice to other countries yeah. in terms of building relationships with these three superpowers. Well, well I, I think, so I'll, I'll quickly go, then Malcolm can go. I think have an, have an open mindset and inclus inclusive mindset. And this is the big, um, the big downside of an, a pandemic is Australia has been a very welcoming place for skilled migrants, for example, for the last 20, 30 years. And that's been a fundamental building block for our economic success. And a lot of these people have come from, from China and India. And, and, you know, and a lot of them are dual citizens too. So it's that movement of people and families and, you know, sort of that, and, you know, the contribution that say foreign students have made to Sydney's social and economic and Australia's economic fabric too and, and well-being cannot be, it's hard to underestimate. It has been for some time our third biggest services, it's our third biggest export and our biggest services export. So, you know, it, it brings lots of things. It brings people to come and learn here and you learn from those people in the process. And say, for example, in the faculty of the built environment in the University of New South Wales, there are so many students who actually come from countries, you know, in, in the Asia region, but also from Iran. Um, and, you know, so, so these universities, and I'm sure the same is in the, the same in the US, these universities are a kind of like a really critical cross-fertilization grant for the sharing of ideas and knowledge and, you know, in, in a good sense, obviously there are, there are risks involved in that, but, you know, on the positive side, it's impossible to imagine Australia in the last 10, 20 years without the contribution of foreign students and their families and the lives that they've built here. Well, I, Viola, that's, Lucy's said it all really, but I just, I just add a couple of things. Uh, the, the most important thing is to um, ma maintain a political discourse that's built around mutual respect. Uh, it's very important for political leaders uh, to seek to unite their communities and their nations and reject uh, racism uh, or uh, division in any form, in any form. Uh, you know, the, the glue that binds a multicultural society together is mutual respect. And uh, that's, you know, that, that is absolutely critical. And you can see in countries where that's fraying, uh, you then get consequent uh, social problems. Uh, in terms of um, economic growth, I mean, demography is destiny, Bala. You know, so, you know, China has got the largest population. India is the second largest. India actually may be a little bit ahead of China now. But ultimately, uh, it's inevitable that, you know, they will, each of those countries will be the, be the two largest economies in the world. The United States is the third biggest country in the world in terms of population followed by Indonesia. So Indonesia, our closest neighbour, will be the fourth or fifth biggest economy by GDP in the world, you know, within a, a decade or two. Uh, so that's, all of that is, uh, all of that's, you know, inevitable bar as long as you have, you know, peaceful uh, economic growth. Um, I would say <clears throat> that I think uh, investment is uh, is critically important. Um, however, it is easy, much easier to invest in Australia than it is to invest in India or China. Uh, so the you know one of the one of the problems of the times in which we're living is that we're living in a you know this uh, rising protectionism, and of course this pandemic um, you know exacerbates that. And you know I just repeat what I've said many times. You know protectionism is not a uh, ladder to get you out of the low growth trap. It's a shovel to dig it deeper. So free trade and open markets are absolutely critical to continued economic growth. And that is the lever that has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty uh, over the last uh, several decades. Very well said. That's a great point. I completely agree with Malcolm, but one of the 
the things I think this pandemic has, has taught us is that we need to be very, very vigilant about the security of our supply chains for things like PPE and other critical you know, food supply chains. I think we're at a better, much greater advantage in Australia than possibly other nations who depend much more on food exports are. So we have to, you know, we have to have, a, you know, we have to have an open mindset, but a strategic um, focus on the on the uh, on the um, assuring supply chains of essential goods and um, and uh, services. No, great. Actually, as a question, I was going to ask both of you, really, has the relationship changed in terms of the view of, um, you know, China? And has the relationship changed as well in terms of Australia, in terms of um, moving from being an exporter of natural resources to being one of a manufacturing or services uh, economy? Is there a movement to kind of change that or shift that? Uh, I, yeah, look, uh, I think the the China relationship has been a bit strained. Uh, over the last few years. Um, I think it's fair to say that under Xi Jinping, uh, China has adopted a more aggressive, um, you know, forward-leaning posture diplomatically and in foreign affairs. You know, the uh, expansion of the forward operating bases, artificial islands, etc., in the South China Sea is a good example of that. Uh, You know, I go through the history of all of that in my connection with it uh and lucy's in the in the book but the that you look the reality is china has chosen to become you know more forward leaning and that has inevitably uh resulted in uh friction with other you know with countries that have different values and you know we we have um incurred the wrath and criticism of the powers that be in beijing for uh standing up for our values but we've not taken a backward step and we don't intend to and the, you know, the, I, I, my, my own view is that this uh, increasingly aggressive uh, posture that you're seeing, the so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, is utterly counterproductive. It may make sense in terms of Chinese domestic politics. That's far from me to judge. But in terms of international affairs, uh, when uh, you see the United States under President Trump being uh, more erratic, more more deliberately uh, erratic. I mean, it's part of Trump's style, you know, to keep everybody, you know, on edge. And uh, he has rattled the cages of all of his, you know, of, of friend and foe alike. Uh, in that context, the opportunity for China was to be the exact reverse and to be as, you know, predictable, consistent, measured, uh, uh, to underreact rather than overreact. And instead, you know, they've kind of gone down the same path which i think has been unhelpful but the um look we we've had when i was introduced uh, foreign interference and foreign influence legislation in 2017 18 we have the chinese ambassador went out into the you know in public here and threatened trade sanctions against australia which was completely counterproductive uh and he's did the same thing the other day just when uh, uh mr morrison the prime minister uh, said there should be an inquiry into the origins and management of the virus, which seems a, you know, the sort of uh, proposition that you would think that, uh, you know, whatever point or sub, you know, uh, subtext there was to, might have been suspected to be associated with it in Beijing. The simplest thing to do was to let that one go through to the keeper and say, of course there'll be an inquiry, of course. Well, look at everything, you know, origin, management, how, how different countries managed it, and, you know, what happened here and there. And instead, it became a, a matter of uh, indignation, which was ludicrous, I thought. So, so the, the, but, you know, I, I just come back to the fundamental point that Luce and I were making earlier about people. You know, the relationship between uh, China and Australia is not just what you see leaders say, you know, and it's, it's a lot more than the economics and the big trade figures. There are one and a quarter million Australians of Chinese heritage. Two of them are two of our four grandchildren. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, you could not imagine modern Australia without the chi- contribution of Chinese people. And it is, you know, it's, it, China is China and Chinese people are family. 
and the you know while there will be differences between the government of china and the government of australia at different times uh that doesn't detract from that very close relationship and this is you know this is the genius of our multicultural project here in australia and it's one that we've got to just keep on reinforcing all the time and as i said that's you know that the key to that i've said it before and i'll say it again is mutual respect Malcolm, that's massively reassuring, um, given the nature of Australia and how it's grown and, and really embracing mm. that level of multiculturalism, mm. embracing the level of diversity, because it's important as a country moves forward, everybody has mm. to have their own view of and path forward as, as an Australian. Uh, we've got a question here before we jump into the next section, and it's coming from uh, Liz Miller, and it's, it's really going to Lucy. Uh, would love to hear more about how the concept mm. of the woman design city has been received, and I thought I'd showcase that and then jump to you, Lucy. Okay. okay. Well, it's been very positively received and the Greater Sydney Commission has been working with lots of um, different people, different government agencies, uh, transport, uh, roads, all, all the, the key agencies that deliver, if you like, the public realm in, in, in Greater Sydney. And what, what we actually launched on the 5th of March, you know, was actually my last public appearance before the lockdown and I stepped uh, I resigned on the 31st of March was a new thing called a women's safety charter, which has been uh, subscribed to by lots of uh, different government agencies, transport police, uh, private sector organisations. You know, people very involved in the, you know, the hospitality and entertainment industry, to ha really to ha start having a conversation, particularly with the female employees who work for the particular organisations about where they feel safe, how they feel safe, and how they might feel safer, what works and what doesn't work. So that Women's Safety Charter of the Greater Sydney Commission will be an ongoing um, charter, and it will be an ongoing collaboration and conversation across the private sector and the public sector and not-for-profits about how to be best assure women feel safe. Because if women feel safe in the city, um, you know, physically safe, um, and able to move around the city, then economic participation and social and cultural participation will be will be you know much much greater. So it's that idea of making it possible for people to women to feel safe, particularly if they're on their own when it's dark, getting a taxi or calling an Uber or getting public transport, etc. And all the things like what level of lighting, what sort of you know, granularity of the sidewalk surfaces, etc., work from a sense of safety. Because, you know, if you have small children, I remember this vividly, this is one of the things that kind of, you know, triggered my mind when I was, um, when, when our son, who's now 38, was very young, you know, pushing a pram around the CBD was pretty much impossible because of the ramps, you know, the, the gradient of the, the sidewalks and the, the ramps upstairs and stuff. So it's, it's actually being thoughtful about how people move through the city. But the important thing is that if you make a city safe, if women feel safer in a city and they feel the city's better designed for their safety and amenity, then everyone will feel safe. Because that's, A, that's half the population, but it also includes, that means younger people will feel safe. It'll mean dis people with disabilities will feel safe. So it's part of making the city really inclusive. Excellent. And, and thank you for that, Lucy. And, and now we're going to shift a little bit to talking about tech and data and leadership. And, and I'm going to go first to Malcolm and, and then to Lucy on two related questions that build upon what we've been talking about. Uh, Malcolm, you know, in your, I can remember when we first met, it was 2015, you know, we were talking about the, the early stages of the Internet of Things, which of course hasn't, hasn't shown up commercially as fast as we would have hoped, but it's showing signs in industry. But, you know, we weren't talking about things such as like misinformation, disinformation as widely as we are now. We weren't talking necessarily about um, how we could possibly use um, tracking apps and the privacy concerns that may be present with them for COVID-19. And we weren't talking about the tech lash, which has clearly come to pass since 2015, where in 2015, you know, a lot of Silicon Valley firms were looked at that they could only do good, but now there's, 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 there's questions or at least there's a lack of trust. And so in your experience, Malcolm, what has been your experience with, with how tech and data has changed the nature of leadership? And do you have any leadership lessons that you'd like to share with us? Well, I think I think the it's 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 changed it in every way. You know, the, the there's no aspect of of leadership, whether it's in government or business, that hasn't been changed by the disruption of technology. I mean, we are 
in an age where the pace and the scale of change is greater than it has ever been before in all of human history. So um, let me let me just grab one example. Um, <clears throat> if you take the media, um, a few decades ago, all of the media was curated. Uh, that is to say, if you wanted to get your opinion to a wide audience, you needed to persuade an editor or a producer to get you into the newspaper or onto the radio or TV program. Uh, media outlets tended, for the most part, to seek to address a very large audience, uh, and that was to, you know, uh, maximise their their advertising revenues. Uh, and so that there was a desire to be not necessarily all things to all people, but certainly extreme partisanship was counterproductive. All that has changed. Uh, we've now got to the point where uh, the economics, the cost of producing media, I mean, here we are, you can run a television station from your you know, garage with a couple of iPhones if you want to nowadays. Right. So, so the cost of producing media has completely changed. Uh, the ability to narrow cast has gone to the nth degree. You know, if there is no doubt a Twitter stream and a Facebook uh, page and uh, various other channels su supporting the proposition that the five of us are all, you know, members of the Illum Illuminati uh, and, uh, you know, seeking to overthrow the world. There you go. Well, I've given it up now, David. So, people can now select their own echo chamber. And the and that that and and the mainstream media, I mean, I you know there's a discussion of how this evolved in my book, including some reflections on what this has meant to the Murdoch media, which of course has gone off to become essentially a propaganda operation. So you know the the one of the most ironic statements you can imagine is when Fox News says it's fair and balanced. I mean, it doesn't even purport to be so. It is a partisan. Uh, news channel, and it sees itself as countering other partisan news channels. And so the problem then that you've got is a very divided society, and this is the challenge for political leaders who want to unite everybody, those leaders that do, of course, far too many nowadays are seeking to exploit that division. But if you want to bring people together, the challenge is that people are not, as they used to be, watching the same news and sharing the same facts. And that, you know, that creates a great challenge. The final point I'd make is that the most outrageous falsehoods uh, and lies and conspiracy theories that in years past would not get into the media because they wouldn't get past the editor, uh, and if they did, would be just trashed and torn to shreds, can now get enormous uh, reach uh, through social media so in other words so the lesson and again i give some practical examples of this in the book you know the um the lesson is that we used to say oh when someone says something crazy about you don't respond to it because you'll just give it salience you cannot do that anymore because uh the viral nature of social media will give it salience anyway so every doesn't matter what people say uh, you have got to be prepared to hit it on the head and hit it hard early, as early as you can. So it's a completely different media landscape. So virtually all of the premises that you used to deal with as a politician are now altered and in some cases turned on their heads. Very well said. And real quick, I'll ask you a rejoinder before I go to Lucy. In this era in which, again, like you said, uh, misinformation or taking things out of context and, you know, maybe it's 99% correct, but there's 1% out of context, does this lead to the age of bullies that we might be seeing? And like you said, does that mean that we need to swing the pendulum to the other way, which is yeah. promote mutual respect? Well, bullying is a very good point. Um, okay, so a very good friend of mine, I won't quote him, but he, he very good friend of mine who's a lot of experience in politics and public affairs living in the United States, said to me, he said, you know, the Americans talk about the First Amendment and their commitment to freedom of speech. He said, I have never felt less free to speak than I do in the United States today. And the reason for that is not because somebody can get an injunction to stop him from speaking or even sue him for libel. But the reason is that if the, the, the pylon, the aggressive 
you know, denunciation of, uh, of people uh, on social media is now is, is quite intimidating. I mean, you know, if you're Donald Trump, you you cop it and you dish it out. And, you know, people that if you get into public life, you know, there's the old saying, you know, if you can't, if you don't like the heat, get out of the kitchen. Uh, the um, But, you know, normal people, <laughs> i.e. most people, find all this abuse incredibly intimidating. And basically that is that is a form of bullying. And, and so, you know, one of the challenges that we've got is how do we maintain a civil discourse? You know, it gets back to that point I made earlier about mutual respect. You know, once you stop respecting people, uh, that then leads to worse and worse outcomes. I mean, David Cameron, when he was British Prime Minister, gave a very good speech in Birmingham years ago about uh, extre you know, uh, right, you know, extremist violence, sort of uh, in the context of people like ISIS and Al-Qaeda and so forth. And he just made the point that he said, you know, this and this, this applies to domestic violence too. You start off with disrespect, you start off with hate speech, and then it's a continuum, and then at some point it turns into violence. So, you know, one of Lucy's great insights, which I plagiarised uh, constantly, it is, it is, after all, the sincerest form of flattery. Um, <laughs> she said, uh, not all disrespect of women leads to violence against women, but that's where all violence against women begins. And you can make the same point about you know, racist violence, about, um, you know, uh, extremist violence. It begins with that uh, disrespect. And, uh, you know, that's why maintaining a respectful civil discourse, I know this sounds like just kind of crazy idealism in this current <laughs> age, but that's why it's so vitally important. And it's why it's important that leaders respect that. You know, that is absolutely critical. Uh, can I just say, just coming in on what Malcolm said, what, one of the things that worries me the most, and it's an evolution of the safe, Women's Safety Charter, was about you know a sense of spatial safety, moving around the city physically. But one of the other very great forms of a lack of perceived safety is actually trolling, particularly of, of women, on especially on gender on gender grounds when when people when women, especially young women, but all women are trolled and given, um, if you like, uh, extremely gender-biased uh, dis negative discourse about them. I think that has a very deterrent effect on women engaging in the public square, if you like, mm -hmm. virtual or, or real. So actually addressing that propensity for the social media to amplify gender bias and for elements of the mainstream media to tolerate it. Uh, there's a, there's, if you like, there's a supply chain of negativity, which has a very bad effect on women's perceived safety, particularly women of colour, etc., and and women who are, you know, if you like, speaking up and speaking loudly. I don't really care which side of politics they're on, but when they are abused on, you know, gender basis, on a gender basis, it is really intolerable. And there's a whole continuum from social media, mainstream media down to whether they feel safe getting into a taxi. They actually, I think, are all inter interconnected in a very material way. Now, I think in terms of the tech backlash, I think I'm quite fascinated by the tech backlash personally and, and the slowness. I mean, I remember in 2015 going to Germany when I was the, um, you know, the honorary president of the Australian German Chamber of Commerce and everybody thought, you know, what do they call it? Um, well, we call it the Internet of Things, but it was... Um, 4.0 internet was it internet 4.0 i can't remember what it's called anyway everybody thought it was going to be ubiquitous imminently but there is i think a real sense of <coughs> about connecting everything to each other i know i feel pretty anxious about it myself and i'm sure i'm not alone and, and you know when events like that um, a couple of years ago when the um when the baby monitors were being hacked so people's whole security and internet <laughs> wi-fi systems could be hacked via a baby monitor i mean your head sort of as a, as a non-technology you know expert i'm very interested in it but not as a technologist mm -hmm. uh you know, your head explodes when you think that it's mm -hmm. something is you know focused on safety as a baby safety monitor monitor can actually be used as a weapon against a household it's just mm -hmm. terrifying so you know, we've got to be very careful about that 
the risks and the, and the tech backlash. But can I say on a positive note, um, I think a lot of governments are doing a very good job at becoming more citizen focused and citizen friendly. I mean, the state government here in New South Wales has been doing a great job on its service delivery. And I think that um, Salesforce has been helping them, um, Vala. But, um, and and New the New South Wales government is very user friendly when it comes to government services and knowledge. And so I have to give them, um, um, you know, huge recognition for that. But also note that the risks are becoming much more widely appreciated as evidenced the other day by IBM announcing that it was, wasn't going to use face recognition. Now that is a big thing. So if you, you know, there was a story on PBS, which was broadcast in on um, um, sort of like equivalent of the BBC um, on Monday. And it, it told the story of how fundamental to everything, every financial service, retail transaction, face recognition is, particularly in China. It's actually, it, it makes you realize there's going to be a disparity in how, in how we deal with technology between countries and between cultures. Absolutely. Yeah, Very well said, Lucy. Real sir. quick, I have a real quick rejoinder and then I'll, I'll hand it back over. On your leadership lessons, given that you, you, you stepped in as the first uh, woman um, Lord Mayor of Sydney, uh, do you have any specific observations that maybe there are things that we might be missing uh, as either males or just in general society may be missing that you saw when you took that role on uh, and, and what you would recommend for, for other leaders that want to bring more diversity and inclusion into a leadership role? Well, I think... I mean, it's probably a generalisation, but my observation is the Greater Sydney Commission is a very female-led and female, um, you know, dominated organisation. It's a small organisation of about 40 or 50 full-time employees, but the leadership is, is mostly female and the, the, the team is mostly female. And and I think one of the, the differentiating factors of, of the organisation and I think the way women work in leadership, and I would cite Jacinda Ardern and Angela Merkel as well, is that they seem to have um, a less kind of, uh, I, it's my way or the highway kind of approach to life. And they, 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 you know, there's a modality where I think that, so certainly the GSC had a very collaborative approach to working with other government agencies and other you know, organisations, and it's that collaborative mindset, which I think when you're dealing with wicked problems like how to make this cities successful and work and connected and, you know, address, um, you know, social inequity and economic inequity, etc., and, you know, a pandemic in the, you know, in the most recent case that um, Jacinda Ardern and Angela Merkel have been ha having to deal with, there is a perception that women act inclusively and not in a command and control way. And I think that's one of the benefits of female leadership. And I think you know, it, it's it's sort of like classic feminization, and there are lots of exceptions on either side. And I know Malcolm's a very collaborative uh, worker and leader, and a, and a very good listener. But I think that you know, female-led organisations have often have that added ingredient of inclusiveness and not, you know, hard, hard leadership. If you like, know what I mean? It's a softer, more collaborative and inclusive way of doing things. No, this is great. And we're going to jump in to talk a little bit about the future. I'm going to point that to Vala, who has got a couple questions there to talk about the post-COVID world, post-pandemic world, and what's next. So, Vala, go ahead. Sure. You know, I, I honestly, I think our listeners uh, who are entrepreneurs and business leaders, they would like advice from you on the importance of trust. And um, so I want to share some U.S.-oriented um, statistics in terms of the layers of crisis, so crises that we faced in 2020, obviously the health crisis. Um, U.S. just passed 117,000 deaths. I believe the first death was recorded March 2nd. So 117,000 deaths in three and a half months. I believe that's more fatalities than World War One. So clearly a, a health crisis. There's an economic crisis of over 40 million U.S. adults filed for unemployment. That number just means that every one of us now knows a family member or a friend who's lost his or her job due to the pandemic. Uh, so numbers that you can't wrap your head around. Um, there's a race crisis. You saw a murder live on video, uh, which outraged the country. I'm a first generation Iranian refugee immigrant. So the good news is I know our country can be better, but right now it's a dark period. And uh, so there's a race crisis. Um, 
climate crisis. When I immigrated to the U.S., uh, there were only three megacities, Me uh, Mexico City, uh, Tokyo, and New York City. There are now 33 megacities, over 10 million population. And by the end of this decade, there will be 43 megacities. So the wars of the future may be scarcity of water or food, because at that time we'll have to feed 10 billion people. That's 2.5 billion more than the current population. So we still have a climate crisis that we can't forget about. And lastly, there's a leadership leadership crisis. There's divisiveness, there is deceit, there is uninformed decisions, irrelevant recommendations, and, 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 and so all of this, all of these things create a deficit of trust. People, you can't respect someone if you don't trust them. So my, 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 my question to you, and again, we have entrepreneurs, business leaders, folks that want to do better. Uh, how do you establish trustworthiness? I mean, you are a successful venture capitalist. What do you look for before you invest in a company in terms of assessing trustworthiness of an individual? I think we could all uh, learn quite a bit from, 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 from both of you. Malcolm. Well, <laughs> I've seen a lot of uh, trustworthy and untrustworthy people in my life, particularly in politics. Um, look, I, I think the, <clears throat> the important thing is whether people are truthful, uh, uh, whether they, that, that, is, that's, that is the most important thing. Um, uh, if people, if you can rely on people to be truthful and frank uh, and uh, have got self-awareness, is vitally important. You know, it, I mean, you find in business, uh, a lot of people uh, are mis, are mis, will mislead you, not necessarily, not because they're dishonest, um, in, a, in the sense of, of, of literally deliberately telling a lie, but because they basically believe their own, um, you know, their own sales pitch. <laughs> and, uh, and they, you know, become sort of a little bit delusional. Now, from a, you know, putting my lawyer's wig on, I would say there's no distinction between that and telling a lie, right? So I'm just, I'm talking in an emotional level rather than a legal level. Uh, and so it is, it's, you know, finding people that are hard headed is, is hard. On the other hand, you want entrepreneurs who do believe they can shoot for the stars and, and succeed. So, you know, I think often, you know, in a, in a entrepreneurial company, whether it's a new one or an old one, it's often, in my experience, which is much more limited, you know, than Fala's or Ray's uh, in that respect. But my own experience, and I think Luce would probably agree with this, I think you want to make sure that your entrepreneur, the visionary, uh, the one who does believe that, you know, he or she has invented, you know, the ultimate technology, uh, as there's also a chief operating officer, a CFO, or somebody there who is actually uh, you know, making sure that the numbers are right and that there is a reality check. Uh, I think it's, a, you know, the, I mean, the businesses, businesses are like a bit like an orchestra. You know, everyone, every, everyone's got to play a part. Everyone's got an instrument to play. Ideally, they all play, uh, you know, all singing off the same song sheet, if you don't, or playing off the same score, but they've got different roles. And, uh, that is that that's that that's that is critical. But I mean, there are some you know, in in politics, unfortunately, uh, you know, uh, you know, dishonesty uh, is actually sort of or is actually in many cases sanctioned if not rewarded. I mean, sometimes the political media will applaud a politician who gets away with a terrible falsehood, and the electorate don't seem to care. I mean, how many people who are who are demonstrated consistent liars keep on getting re-elected. Now that that is where the business world is somewhat different. I mean, if you are a company director and you establish a reputation for lying, you know you will not be able to raise money, and you may well end up behind bars or at least spending a lot of time in lawyers' offices. Yeah, I think trust is absolutely. Um, you know, longer term, an essential ingredient in any um, healthy, you know, political and social system. Um, I think that, you know, the opposite of trust is really anarchy. And I think, uh, you know, that's, and, and um, you know, a lack of, you know, so, 
you know, if you think of, you know, let's go back to something really basic like Maslow's hierarchy of needs that I'm sure we all studied at some point in the university. You know, the first of <laughs> yep. that is safety and then there's food, clothing and shelter. And I think when you have, you know, a real lack of trust that people are safe, hmm. um, especially minority groups are, are, are safe, then you, you have a fundamental uh, problem with the first apex issue on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And so you cannot underestimate the significance of that. And you have to address that. And I note that a lot of government, governors and, and I think the, even the, um, the Congress is trying to address that. It couldn't be more important. You know, you have to have, I mean, in, in um, New South Wales in, in particular, the state we live in that Sydney's the capital of, we have had in the 70s and the, the 80s the huge deficit of trust in the police, in the police force and their, you know, their, their um, I guess, their lack of corruption. That's that's been addressed and I think it's much better now and there are organisations and institutions that check that they are honest. But I remember vividly being a young lawyer at a time when there was a low level of trust in the police force and their bona fides, if you like, and there isn't a more fundamental problem in any civil society. But by the same token, you can't go to the other end of the spectrum and become a fascist authoritarian state. So this is the challenge for all liberal democracies is how to get the balance right but you've got to work on it without going to the outer edge on the other side of the on the other side of the spectrum i wanted to thank you we are close to out of time here yeah. uh, we are here on a special edition of disrupt tv uh, with the former prime minister 29th prime minister of australia malcolm turnbull you can follow him on twitter at turnbull malcolm and of course uh, lord um, late former Lord Mayor of Sydney, uh, Lucy Turnbull. You can follow her at Lucy Turnbull underscore AO. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been an honor to have you here. Vala, Dr. David Bray, anything else? Ray, I know we're getting a little bit close, but I would like to just ask one quick tweetable comments from both Lucy and Malcolm. And I think we need to bring this home. And I think we're almost there, both Lucy and then Malcolm. If you could give one tweet recommendation on how we lead with positive change and with empathy, uh, maybe Lucy first and Malcolm second. I think that'll wrap it all up and close. So sorry, Ray, but all right. I think we got to do that. Well, I love it. <laughs> okay. I love it. Well, well, I think that people who want to build trust and a greater sense of um, you know wider wider community across various groups need to come together at this really difficult time in in world history and many nations' history to create trust, not to not to breach it. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you. Lucy and Malcolm, your thoughts? Uh, follow the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do to you. Mutual respect is the glue that makes our multicultural societies successful and possible. Very well done. Thank you again. And thank you, Vala and Ray. It's been an honor to join you as a co-host. Really enjoyed this show. Thank you, Malcolm and Lucy. Thank you Onward so much. Together. Thank you. Okay, thank bye, you. bye, everyone. Right. Have a lovely day. Thank you, everyone. Okay.